and welcome to the Painting Podcast, episode 10, Hannah Hoch. I'm Jeremiah Polachek, your pilot on your path to become a better painter. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the life and work of German Dadaist, collage pioneer, and anti-fascist, Hannah Hoch. So Hannah was born the eldest daughter of five children. And she went to school for a while at an all-girls school, so you can get an idea of how the genders were divided back at the turn of the 20th century. And she went to school until she was 15 years old there, and then she was taken out to look after her new little sister. So you can think about, you know, nowadays when a, when a girl gets pregnant at 16, we think, oh, her life is over, her life is ruined. We make a show about it called Teen Mom, but back then, they literally took their daughter out of school to look after their kid, <laughs> okay? So this, this gives you an indication of what's to come in, in Hannah's future in terms of the culture that she's thrown into and the classifications of gender and what men are supposed to do and what women are supposed to do, because that will continue to be at the forefront of her work throughout her life. So she continues to live in Gotha for the next eight years, taking care of the house, taking care of her little sister, doing all these sorts of things. But during this time, she continues drawing a lot, and she continues painting a lot. And, you know, Gotha is a, it's really a city. It's not like some, you know, rural village where she was completely divorced from city life and these sort of things. And Hannah really wanted to get out of Gotha, obviously. And in 1912, she was able to do just that when she got into the School of Applied Arts in Berlin. And when she began her studies, she actually went there to study glass design. And when you think of glass design, it's, it's more of a stable career path. I imagine there is glass studios. You can, you know, there's a business model attached to studying glass design. And if you're wondering what types of things would glass designers do, of course, they'd be making chandeliers. They'd be making goblets and pitchers and these sorts of things as well. But it's more of a craft-oriented uh, trajectory when she went into school. And she supposedly did this to please her father. And you can imagine somebody today, you know, perhaps they want to study graphic design rather than painting because... We associate graphic designers with being employable, right? So Hannah took a similar path back in 1912 when she began her studies in Berlin. And she'd only be able to be in Berlin for two years before World War I breaks out. And so Hannah goes back to Gotha. And what does she do? Does she just hang out and draw some landscapes and sit around the house. No, she joins the Red Cross during the beginning of World War I. So she works for the Red Cross for one year, and then in 1915, she heads back to Berlin to continue studying at the National Institute of the Museum of Arts and Crafts. And during the same year, Hoch began uh, to start dating Raoul Hausmann, 
who was also a principal member of the Berlin Dada movement. And when we're thinking about Dadaism and what it means, Dadaism actually starts around 1913 with the term anti-art that was coined by Marcel Duchamp. And Dadaism would gain in popularity after the war began in Switzerland. There's also a different strain of Dadaism that was happening in New York and, of course, in Germany as well. So while Dadaism was the, the seeds of Dada were planted pre-World War I with Marcel Duchamp, it really gained in popularity after World War II began ramping up. And Dadaism was seen as an irrational, absurd, anti-aesthetic, anti-capitalist, anti-bourgeoisie alternative at the time. And one thing that really set Dada apart from other art movements was that it really spanned uh, the burgeoning form of art, which is performance art, sculpture, painting, and of course with Hannah, the introduction of collage as well. And these were artists who were also creating a lot of books or pamphlets. Today we might think of them something similar to zines, and there's actually some aesthetic similarities between the early Dadaist publications and what we'd think of as these punk zines being today. Of course, we can see a lot of collage in these in these zine culture as well. So Hannah was involved with the Berlin Dadaists right from the inception around 1917. And she was, first of all, she was the only woman amongst all these male artists. And she also had really, really short hair. She was bisexual. And she was kind of gruff, I guess we could say the words would be. She was a very straightforward person. This caused her a lot of criticism as well, even among the male artists uh, in Berlin and the Dadaists at that time. So when we're thinking of Hannah Hoch, we have to think of somebody who is basically on the outside of society, challenging culture, challenging gender norms, sexual norms, the fact that she makes her own money and doesn't have to rely on a man for her money, financially independent. She's already going against all of these things in the broader culture. And then she also has to deal with sexism within her own artist group of friends as well. The, the German Dadaist Hans Richter would say of her that she had, quote, a tiny voice of slightly nun-like grace, whose main job was apparently make the sandwiches and the coffee. <sighs> Sorry, just threw up a little bit in my mouth there. But it's really hard to overstate the incredible challenges that women entering the arts would have had at that time. And... Just from a, a point of civilization, it's just so incredibly stupid and dumb to just discount 50% of the population. I mean, imagine all the doctors, all of the you know painters and artists and musicians that we lost simply because they were women. And I think there's one 
young composer right now who really illustrates the differences between what we experience now in 2021 and what would have been experienced 100 years ago. Obviously, we've come a long ways and we still have a long ways to go. But her name is Elma Deutscher, and she's a child prodigy that began playing the piano, um, I think at age three or something like that. And she was said to have started singing before she could even speak. And when asked about who her favorite composers are, Elma said this. Well, of course, the composers I like best were the beautiful melodies and beautiful harmonies like Mozart and Schubert and Tchaikovsky. And also I am inspired by the girls in the past who... Want, who, want, who wanted to become musicians like Fanny Mendelssohn and Nanel, Mozart's sister, but they weren't allowed because in those days girls weren't allowed to become musicians, though they were extremely talented. And so I'm very glad that I'm not living in the olden days and that I'm allowed to become a composer and a musician and I don't have to stay at home and knit and cook. <laughs> so um, Hannah Hoch would be creating art during this period where she would face incredible challenges as a woman. And she's also in this relationship, which is extremely toxic and somewhat abusive as well. And even in, in 1920, she would write a short story called The Painter, which has since been become a great encapsulation of the male ego as it relates to painting itself. And she's kind of poking fun at the seriousness of painters and especially male painters. If you want to get a link to the uh, the full text, you can go to the blog post associated with this podcast at paintingcourse.com, painting-course.com, and uh, you can get the link straight to the entire short story there. But I thought I'd read you the first paragraph just to get a feel for what Hana was also writing during this period. Once upon a time, there was a painter. He wasn't called Dribble or anything like that, as he might have been in earlier times. It was around 1920. The painter was a modern painter. So his name was Heavenly Kingdom. Unlike the real painters of earlier times, he was not asked to work only with brush and palette. This was his wife's fault. She thwarted the boundless flight of his genius. At least four times in four years, he was forced to wash dishes, the kitchen dishes. The first time, actually, there had been a pressing reason. She was giving birth to the baby, Heavenly Kingdom. The other three times had not seemed absolutely necessary to Heavenly Kingdom, Senior, but he wanted to keep the peace. Because after all, God had created the male to do just that, and so had no choice but to obey her Xanthippian demand. Yet the matter continued to weigh on him. He felt degraded as a man and as a painter under its dark shadow. On the days of crisis, he would suffer nightmares. He kept seeing Michelangelo washing up the cups. He knew enough about psychoanalysis to confront the woman with the truth that such demands always arise out of the desire to dominate, no matter what other reasons there might be. 
As a modern person, he felt that in theory, he had to agree with the equality of the sexes. Still, if one looked closely at the situation, one could not, and then, especially in your own house, her demand seemed to him comparable to an enslavement of his soul. So, during this time, she'd be surrounded with all these male artists, and another thing that is kind of annoying about the situation is a lot of these artists would also pay lip service to the ideas uh, relating to women's emancipation. So they would be kind of all talk and no action when it came down to how they treated Hannah. When she was asked about her exclusive when she was asked about her exclusion and the sexism of the other Dadaists, Hook responded, quote, None of these men were satisfied with just an ordinary woman, but neither were they included to abandon the conventional male-masculine morality towards the woman. Enlightened by Freud in protest against the older generation, they all desired this new woman and her groundbreaking will to freedom. But they more or less brutally rejected the notion that they, too, had to adopt new attitudes. This led to these truly Strindbergian dramas that typified the private lives of these men. Now, in addition to Hannah having short hair and being bisexual and all these sorts of things, she was also employed since 1916, she was working at an embroidery publishing company, essentially making patterns for lace and embroidery and these sorts of things that would be sent out in books. So when we start thinking about Hannah, we can also think about somebody who is technically really good at drawing, you know, highly technical patterns of lace. I can't imagine anything really more complicated to draw than something like lace. And she's doing so for a technical manual that's being mass produced and mass printed. So she's working with the uh, mechanisms at play, which will bring about publications. That means, you know, paper, ink. She knows the process that goes into starting off with a drawing and then turning it into something that is inked and that being reproduced and sent out into the world. She's familiar with that entire process. It's actually her work, right? So she's not a graphic designer. She's somebody actually doing drawings that are later inked and uh, reproduced in mass. And in her artwork, she's taking these types of catalogs from the world and rearranging them and creating her own meaning and her own story with those images. And when we think about this, the, the idea of appropriation, of course, comes up as well. There's a good video on the subject called Everything is a Remix. It's a whole video series. You can find it on YouTube or Vimeo, uh, these types of places. And I'd recommend checking that out if you're more interested in appropriation in art. But essentially, we see it almost everywhere 
in the 70s and 80s, especially with hip hop culture, appropriating loops and sounds from other music and creating new music. And of course, collage art, uh, which would start in the around 1915, 1916 as well. And Hannah's involvement with that. So she's taking other people's images and in this day and age, we really associate intellectual property laws as something that a brand has in order to legally cover their tracks. This is something that wouldn't have been in the popular mindset as much a uh, hundred years ago. So when Hannah is making these collages, she feels completely absolutely in the right to take all these images and create her own artwork with them. Now, by 1920, she had worked for various magazines and created the piece Cut with the Kitchen Knife Dada Through the Last Weimar Beer Belly Cultural Epoch of Germany. And she makes this with cut up bits of newspapers that she found and dis different elements, and she collages them all onto one piece of paper. World War One would end in 1918, and this piece would be made two years later. And the, the Weimar Republic was what rose out of the ashes of World War One. And with that, also, there was hyperinflation going on in Germany, and there was a lot of political extremism happening on both sides, uh, left and right. So she was reacting to an extremely volatile time and this collage kitchen knife would also bring in all these political elements and all these gender related elements as well of course the idea of a kitchen knife we think of kitchen knives being associated with kitchen and where women are supposed to be but it's also involved with cutting and collage is also the result of cutting things so cut with a kitchen knife already bringing in that idea of her role as a woman and turning it on its head with the creation of this collage. By 1922, Hannah would end her relationship with Raoul Hausmann, and she would begin a relationship with the Dutch writer and linguist Matilda Brueggemann, uh, who Hoke had met through mutual friends Kurt and Helma Schwitters. And she would stay with... Brugman for nine years until 1935. And during this period, she would move to The Hague for a little bit and then back to Berlin again. But during, the, during this time, she continued making all these collages and she was making a lot of paintings as well. And one thing that I find really interesting about Hoch's work that I kind of use in my work as well is this idea of taking images, cutting them up, and then painting from these collages. Because indeed, a lot of her paintings that she would create around 1930 she was creating these collages at the exact same time as she was making these paintings. And she would create collages sometimes with paintings as a part of the collage. And other times she would make only paintings using oil paint based on looking at the collage that she had created previously. And I think this whole process of taking from culture, cutting it up, rearranging it, and then putting it back out into the world on a canvas or in the form of a collage is still a really pertinent way of art making. And it's one that started with Hannah Hoch and her collage work, as well as the other 
Dadaists around the world at that time. If you'd like to see a good example of one of Hanna's paintings, I would take a look at Cube from 1926, where we see this uh, congregation of disparate imagery, plants and gears and a, a giant rainbow across the top of the canvas, a factory off in the distance with smoke chimneys emitting spoke into the sky, a fan, what looks like a little Mario type tube coming out of the earth, and these kind of invented forms, which I think are absolutely beautiful and, and show just how intricate and what a good draftsman and what a good painter she was. When you look at some of these flower creations that she's creating, she's making these spirals that look like they're coming out of these embroidery patterns, this type of complication that she has to work with over and over again during her jobby job is coming into her paintings as well. And they're just beautifully painted. So you can see all these elements coming together with natural forms and flowers, as well as a cube that sits right in the center of the painting, where we see disparate pieces of a face rearranged on different sides of the cube, like our face is on some dice or something like that. I love Hannah's paintings. I think, you know, the collages are good. I'm just, you know, this is the uh, the painting course uh, web podcast and the painting podcast. This is the painting podcast, so I have to just naturally see myself magnetized to her paintings. But when I was looking up, there doesn't seem to be a lot of information about the paintings because she's so tied to photo collage and Dadaism. But I feel like these paintings, especially when they're coming, Cube comes in 1926. So we're deep into surrealism at this point, and Freud and Salvador Dali and Max Ernst. And Max Ernst, of course, is making photo collages as well. And he's also making paintings. And Ernst, for some reason, I think is more associated with his painting, and Hannah is more associated with collage, at least in my mind. But I just love her paintings, and I wish somewhere in the world there would be just a painting exhibition of Hannah Hoch's paintings, because I don't think they get nearly enough of the attention that they deserve. By 1930, she would create the painting Symbolic landscape three. And this was a pretty big oil painting where we see all these disparate elements. We see this woman with these two babies, these little toddlers kind of erupting out of her stomach in the bottom left-hand corner. And we see all these different... Uh, <sighs> And rising up out of the ground in this surrealistic landscape, we see all these disparate... (sighs) 
and rising up out of the ground in this surreal landscape, we see all these magnificent flowers and plants that she's created out of her imagination and a sort of cat-like creature, a little blue cat-like creature in the bottom right corner. And so she would look at these as symbolic paintings. So one has to imagine all these different symbols within the painting all have various meanings to her as well. We have a large pool in the center and these types of mountainous background images with this abstract sky and sun shining down on everything. But I think it's interesting when we start thinking about our minds and symbology and how we want to depict these ideas that are going on inside of our heads. They're like dreams. They're not real places. There's already a fantastical aspect to the creation of this type of imagery within our mind that does not exist in the outside world. So when we're looking at Hannah's collages, we can see that she's taking directly from the outside world and she's cutting out the image of a meat grinder and gluing it onto a piece of paper. That that meat grinder is definitely a meat grinder that we all know and have all deal dealt with uh, throughout the years, perhaps. Whereas in her paintings, and one thing I really like about her paintings is that we get a glimpse inside of her mind and inside of these creations that she wanted to explicitly make from her own brain and from her own experience. And that's what we see in symbolic landscape number three as well, which is a great one to go check out. Uh, all the images are over on the website at painting-course.com. By 1935, she'd break up with Matilda and she would begin a relationship with a businessman and pianist named Kurt Matthias. And uh, she would later marry him in 1938 and stay married with him until 1944. During the same time, she'd buy a small, uh, a small cabin, I guess we could call it. It's these small little houses that are quite common in Europe that people have on the outskirts of town often. And she would buy this little house. You can still go visit it. It's still there in this small, they call them suburbs, but they're not really suburbs. They're more like rural villages that haven't been gobbled up by the city, really, that are quite common in Germany and uh, throughout much of Europe. And she would buy this home. And of course, you know, she's in Berlin. Everybody else, all the other Dadaists, they got out. <laughs> they got out of Germany uh, because of what was obviously on the rise with the rise of the Nazi party there and Hitler. And um, Hannah would actually stay in Berlin during this period, but she would have to lay really low because she was lab labeled a, a degenerate artist. Of course, she was in a relationship with a woman for a long time, and that would be something that, of course, you know, the Nazis wouldn't like either. So she was married to Kurt during this time and mostly just laid low at their cabin on the outside of town. Now, preceding this move, she would have made a couple paintings that would be direct criticisms of the rise of Nazism all around her, all around her at that time. One of them would be called Savage Outbreak that she painted in 1933, and of that she qu said, quote, It originated in 1933. 
when it was unmistakably revealed that the German world of men had begun this savage outbreak into national arrogance, injustice, and a madness for world domination. The women, especially the mothers, accepted this downfall with great anxiety, with mistrust, but resigned themselves to it. In another painting she'd create in 1935 titled The Mockers, she would have a man who's off in this sort of nebulous landscape and there's this mob of people that are pointing and laughing and jeering at him. And this painting could be seen as a direct condemnation and denunciation of this scapegoating mob mentality that had been so expertly manipulated by the Nazis. And we can think about, you know, what we're dealing with right now in the world and how political figures can still whip up mobs into action. And that's something that they were living in. This isn't something in a history film. This is something that she was directly living in and she chose not to run away from it. She chose to stay and keep painting. Now, once World War II ends, there's a, a really stunning change which occurs within Hannah Hoch's works. And it, it was there, I found evidence happening in 1921, where she made a collage which was entirely abstract. And that is what Hannah Hoch's work becomes post-World War II. She goes straight to abstraction, and she starts thinking about ideas of harmony and nature and relationships and these sorts of things. And I don't want to say that she had a certain political allegiance of any sort. Certainly during this time, there were communists, there were anarchists, there were fascists, and all these different political groups and all sorts of extremism of which many different artists were members of. And Schwitters and, and uh, Jean Arp and Hannah Hoch all kind of walked this anarchic line where they really maintained a certain ideological purity in their work without taking a distinctly political stance, if that makes sense. Obviously, as I was saying in paintings like The Mockers, she's commenting on this mob mentality and these sort of things. But she's not necessarily saying the right wing is wrong or the left wing is wrong or these sorts of things. She's actually taking a stand against all of it in some sort of way. It's really punk. It's more punk than it is political. After the, after the war was over, she would continue to make a lot of these abstract works for decades to come and continue showing photomages that she was creating from the past as well as the present. And she got a lot of funding opportunities from different museums. And so she was a, a well-known, well-respected artist within the community. One thing that stuck out to me, which I thought was kind of mind-boggling, was that around 1962, Raoul Hausman actually got upset by the way she had stored a bunch of his work throughout the years. And I was thinking in my head, like, dude, you guys broke up like 40 years ago. She's kept your stuff for 40 years. And um, you're going to be upset 
by the way, with the, the condition that it's in. So anyway, that kind of stuck out as a sort of anachronism coming back from the past to haunt her 40 years later after she breaks up with this guy. He gets upset at the way he stored <laughs> the way she stored his work. Uh, but I guess that's the world that she had to inhabit and the people around her. So, uh, yeah, she continued making her work until May 31st, 1978, when she would pass on in Berlin at 88 years of age with 60 years showing and an unbelievable art career that spanned abstraction, surrealism, photo montage. Hannah Hoch is somebody who really was able to maneuver through all these different movements seamlessly, and she's certainly an inspirational figure. So if you've made it this far into the podcast, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week with another podcast, so stay tuned. And if you're interested in a one-on-one artist mentorship program, I've created one over at oko.academy where you can do mentorships with not only me, but other artists in the field. So I really feel like what we're missing right now in all these online classes that people are taking is that oftentimes we're in this huge class of 70 people or 80 people or maybe even just 10 people, but we're lacking that type of one-on-one connection. And I think that's really important for artists to get better at what they're doing and to be able to achieve their goals artistically, financially, all of these sorts of things. So head on over to oko.academy if you're interested in a one-on-one mentorship with me or any of the other artists present on the website. Until next time, happy painting. <laughs>